If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon, the day after Canada's first National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. And when it comes to the prime minister of this country, the optics yesterday could not have been worse. At a moment when we needed Canada's leader, the head of government, to illustrate to Canadians why this was more than just a day off. The prime minister chose to treat it as just a day off. And what made it worse is that he lied about it. The official itinerary of the prime minister showed that he was in meetings in Ottawa yesterday. In truth, he was on a plane flying to Tofino, flying over Kamloops, by the way, where he was invited to come visit and come speak. Flying to Tofino, B.C. uh, for a beach vacation with his family. On September 30th of all days. So Justin Trudeau, the politician, realized the importance, the value of following this recommendation from the Truth and Reconciliation Commission and making this a national holiday. Justin Trudeau, the person, chose to do something very different. And I think in terms of the message that needed to be sent yesterday to Canadians, it was most unfortunate. Now, there were plenty of others filling that leadership void, indigenous leaders, other elected officials across the country. The prime minister was on a beach. Uh, Joining us off the top of this hour for some thoughts on yesterday, the prime minister's decision. And and by the way, I would uh, direct you to uh, torontosun.com. And she wrote a really powerful piece about the residential school legacy and the importance of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation. Melissa Mbarki joins us, a policy analyst, outreach coordinator of the McDonald-Laurier Institute, also a member of the Muskoquan First Nation. Melissa, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for inviting me today, Rob. So let me just get your thoughts on kind of what we needed to see and hear from the Prime Minister yesterday and what we got instead. Well, first of all, I'd like to really thank the Indigenous communities uh, for sharing their stories, their Mm -hmm. history, and bringing to light, you know, something that was more or less in the dark. Uh, So they did a really great job of doing that. Um, What was disappointing and angering um, was the Prime Minister's response to this day. Um, You know, he didn't respond to invites. He lied about where he was during the day. And he didn't address Canadians and Indigenous people, um, you know, when where he thought reconciliation should be going. So he missed a really big opportunity to pull Canadians together. And he was just missing in action for the day. So it was actually quite disappointing um, from a lot of people perspectives, um, including Indigenous people, Um, you know, it it was an insult 
um, to us, you know, even on consultations regarding the lowering of the flag. You know, I would have liked to see, you know, some response to that and say, okay, as after September 30th, you know, we're going to raise it and, you know, we've honoured the residential school children. Right. You know, this is our path forward and this is how we're going. But we didn't see any of that yesterday or even today. No, I don't even know what he's what he's doing today. We haven't seen anything from the Prime Minister today either. Um, you know, and again, I mean, you know, the Prime Minister, I think pays lip service to a lot of this. You know, he he knows what to say in a political speech, but, you know, action's got to matter. And w- where is he on, it, on, on any of this? It, it's really frustrating, isn't it? it? It is really frustrating because I think ultimately what we wanted was some direction or even an acknowledgement. It doesn't take a lot of time to, you know, make an address in the morning before you go on vacation right. just to say, you know what, here's the holiday. This is what it means to me this is what it this is what it means to government and this is how we're moving forward like that wouldn't have taken more than 10 or 15 minutes and you know i'm not really faulting him for what he did during the day but he could have acknowledged you know at least the day um and then had his vacation i mean that would have been fine for everyone i think well that's the thing i mean he's been invited there's been a standing invitation for him to come to kamloops for some time i mean it it would have made sense then if he was inclined to want to spend some time in bc to be in kamloops yesterday uh to have those meetings to to give the speech that needed to be given to do that yesterday to do that today and if he wants to spend saturday and sunday you know having some quiet time with his family i don't think anybody would fault him for that No, definitely not. I mean, he visited the people in Kamloops previously and, you know, he had an ongoing and what seemed like a good relationship with the chief there. So that's where I thought one of his stops would definitely be, was to visit this community and to partake in their events for that day. So with that not happening, I mean, this really sets a tone for reconciliation going forward. Like, are we going to have an absent leader? Is our relationship going to get better or worse because of this? Um, Because we were kind of hoping this day would be the start of a new relationship. And it doesn't look like that's happening anytime soon. I mentioned the piece you wrote for for the Toronto Sun, and I'd, I'd encourage people to read it. It's up at torontosun.com. And, and you talk about the residential schools and, you know, the, the, the trauma of those who survived that. And you say, for those who are alive today, the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation is for you. That this day has and is supposed to have some really deep and profound meaning. And, and I think what concerns so many people about the Prime Minister's absence is it, it does send that message, unfortunately, that it's, it's a day off, it's a holiday, it's a vacation day, it's, it's Labor Day or it's a Victoria Day, when it needs to be about these other things. From, from your perspective and what you were trying to get across in, in your piece, what, what does this day need to represent? The day is essentially for the survivors today who are alive. You know, it's to acknowledge the traumas that they've been through and to bring an understanding of why we are in crisis situations that we are in. So it was to bring more awareness to that. And it was also to honor, you know, the children that didn't make it home as well. And I go back to, you know, this was something the prime minister could have addressed. You know, he could have taken 10 minutes of his time to do this. And 
it just kind of makes me wonder, you know, is this day really for them or was it a nice to have day off for the federal employees? Because a lot of First Nations don't work with the federal government. So many of them wouldn't have had this day off. Um, I didn't. So, you know, it goes back to those gestures and symbolisms and doing, you know, the bare minimum that you can uh, to address a crisis like this. Well, there's so much we need to address as a country and so much that, that the federal government has some responsibility for here. And I mean, we've got six years of, of a lot of talk about addressing these issues and, and not a lot of action, uh, whether it be, you know, justice reform, something else you've written about recently. I mean, obviously the water crisis in, in so many First Nations communities. I mean, we can go down the list and sadly it's it's a long list. I don't know what this portends about the government's commitment to these issues, but I can certainly understand how it it's, you know, leaves a, a lot of frustration, a lot of uncertainty, really, doesn't it? It really does. I mean, we've seen, I think, what a bare minimum effort would look like in the last six years. You know, you, you're just doing enough to stay under the radar. And I think we have to start changing that narrative and asking ourselves, you know, can we do more? And if so, what can we do? And I think we're at the point where, in terms of water, you know, we can't hold this off any longer. You know, we're going to have a bigger situation five years down the road if this is not addressed today. So we have to start looking at concrete plans and actions to actually make improvements in communities and to actually address their infrastructure. You know, a lot of the big announcements that came out in the last year were for urban areas and their infrastructure. Well, you know, First Nations haven't even been addressed in the last decade. So this is something that we have to look at in conjunction with urban areas. And, you know, the the Prime Minister is absolutely not looking at this as a priority, and it should be. You know, like these are basic human rights in Canada that we're talking about. We're not talking about nice to have. We're just talking about basic rights like water. I mean, it shouldn't be an issue, but it is today. It is. Well, we'll leave it there, Melissa. Much more uh, at mcdonaldlaurier.ca. Appreciate your input on all of this, and uh, thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Yeah, thanks for having me. All the best. Uh, That's Melissa Embarkey, who's a policy analyst and outreach coordinator at the McDonald-Laurier Institute. So mcdonaldlaurier.ca, she's got a piece up. Uh, on the uh, issue of, of justice reform, mentioned her piece in the Toronto Sun yesterday about the meaning and the importance of uh, the National Day of Truth and Reconciliation. She's also a member uh, of the Muskoquan First Nation. And as she notes uh, in her Toronto Sun piece, uh, that there was a residential school there. Closed its doors in 1997, not all that long ago. So, your thoughts on the Prime Minister's decision yesterday. And again, this was all very deliberate. And I'm still gobsmacked by it because it's one thing to disagree with, you know, the policies or the agenda or the style or the approach of this Prime Minister. But beneath it all, we assume some basic level of competence. That there are people who are giving him good advice, at least good political advice. And so I don't know where the breakdown was. Uh, But this prime minister was failed by his own selfishness, his own bad instincts, and the bad instincts of everybody around him. So here's the plan. I'm going to fly with my family to the beach in Tofino. 
on September 30th, I want you to put out a press release stating that my official agenda involves meetings in Ottawa. When it's going to be pretty easy for everybody to figure out where I actually am. And then we're going to put out a statement saying not actually on a beach. And let's just hope that journalists don't show up with cameras and spot me on the beach, which Global News did. Like, it was just a a mess from start to finish. And I didn't really know what to make of it, honestly. It just seemed like political leadership 101. If you're the prime minister, especially if you're a premier, that you need to show up on this day. You need to help set the tone for Canadians that this is now a national holiday and it's one for a reason. Right? This isn't the, the May long weekend, day off, have a long weekend, go camping. Like, this is more than just a day off, or at least it's supposed to. And the prime minister has set completely the wrong tone here. Now, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here. Final half hour on this Friday afternoon. Look, one of the questions to this pandemic is, you know, where, where are the treatments? Why don't we have better treatments when it comes to COVID-19? We've got good vaccines uh, to try to prevent illness or serious illness. What about treatments for those who do develop those more serious outcomes? Now, along the way, we found that, you know, some steroid treatments can be useful. Uh, monoclonal antibodies can be useful. But what would really be helpful is a good antiviral. And it's it's tricky. I mean, you know, when you look when you look at influenza, you know, we've got Tamiflu which is okay uh, against influenza but not ideal. Can we get something effective as an antiviral treatment for COVID? And we've got some hint today that the answer is very much yes. Merck has announced that its clinical trial results show that its drug, which interestingly enough, they named after Thor's hammer, uh, that this drug, Molnupiravir, I guess we'll have to get used to that, or maybe eventually it'll have some uh, other name, uh, that it reduces hospitalizations and deaths by half. So that's pretty significant, uh, and uh, they say they'll be submitting this data soon and hope to get some uh, authorization use for this drug in countries around the world. Now, interestingly, the University of Alberta had an important role to play in showing how this drug works against this coronavirus, against SARS-CoV-2. And uh, these findings were published back in May in the Journal of Biological Chemistry. So we made a lot of progress since then, but joining us for some thoughts on this particular drug and how it works and how potentially exciting this all is. Very pleased to welcome the program here this afternoon. Uh, Dr. Matthias Gotte is a professor and chair of medical microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta. Dr. Gotte, thanks so much for joining us here. Welcome to the program. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks. So, yeah, as mentioned, you published this work back in May. Here we are in, uh, well, 1st of October. This this um, this clinical trial results looks very promising. What, what do you make of it all, first of all? Yeah, I was... I was extremely happy to to hear this morning that there's some good news in the pandemic in regard to to the development of antivirals um, the community the scientific community were uh, waiting for for the results of, of this particular trial and um, yeah the news was indeed very good a 50% reduction in hospitalizations with an orally available antiviral drug um, is uh, is quite good news yes it is so talk about how how challenging it is to develop antivirals in the first place 
It is extremely challenging. If, if we look as an, as an example, as a benchmark for HIV or let's say hepatitis C, uh, the treatment uh, development for these chronic viral diseases, HIV was um, discovered in the early 80s and we had an effective treatment combination therapy um, in the mid-90s. So, so roughly 15 years, it took roughly 15 years. Uh, for hepatitis C, it was roughly 20 years until we had these type of very effective antiviral drugs. Um, now we are um, almost in two years in the pandemic with uh, SARS-CoV-2. We have something available also with remdesivir that was previously right. in, in 2020 um, approved the first antiviral but, but limited for its use because it can only be used in, in hospitals. It's an IV drug. This one here, Molnupiravir, is an orally available drug, and we were waiting for this uh, quite some time. It was very clear that this is an unmet medical need, but still, in comparison to HIV and hepatitis C, um, it was uh, clearly uh, quite quite quick the development. And and we have to say, we have to say that these drugs, they were around already before, so they are kind of repurposed. They were not like tailored to SARS-CoV-2. This is, this is what really takes a long time, and uh, we probably will have to wait a little bit longer for these very selective compounds, right? Right, but I mean, you know, this, this certainly seems like one that can make a big difference. So what, what is the, the mechanism here? How, how does this drug target this virus? Yeah, this is a, a very interesting mechanism. So um, it actually does not really inhibit the virus or virus replication. If you if you want to think of drugs, you you always antiviral drugs. You always try to to hit really important parts um, of the replication machinery of the virus. I call it the engine of the virus. Um, remdesivir targets this and inhibits this engine, so the virus cannot replicate. Now, molnupiravir also targets the engine. It's, it's called the polymerase. It generates the genome. It replicates. Um, it also targets this, this engine um, that makes copies of, of the genome. But now it doesn't inhibit it. It rather makes it more sloppy. So the copies that are generated of the viral genome, these are bad copies in such a way that the viruses that are generated, newly generated viruses are not infectious anymore. So it causes the virus to make more mutations than it can actually handle. Well, that's interesting. And, you know, this is a drug, I mean, it's it's taken orally as, as a pill. It's, you know, at least from what we understand from this data, it's it's something that's given, you know, early on in those first five days of, of the, the symptomatic phase. So, you know, th this could be widely used. Some of these other treatments we have are, are much more specific in hospital settings or with severe illness. Th this is something potentially could be more widely used. It's yeah, this is potentially correct. We 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 have to wait. Of course, uh, the data will be reviewed now by the FDA and Health Canada as well, and we have to look into safety data, efficacy data. But the principle is very clear. Um, remdesivir, for instance, that is given in hospitals. 
it is often too late in the disease. So the virus caused already uh, a lot of damage and um, um, that one has to treat the symptoms rather than the virus that caused the disease. So the concept is to treat as early as possible. And this trial was designed um, to treat people um, that were, that showed um, uh, symptoms and within the first five days of showing symptoms these people were treated and on top of this this population in the trial um, they also had uh, at least one risk factor that would predict the severe outcome of the disease um, so treat as early as possible and this is now possible with a um, an orally available drug it is way more complicated with the antibodies or with remdesivir that right. uh, have to be given intravenously that's interesting because you know we, we see that vaccines are, are very effective at preventing severe illness keeping people out of hospital. And, and so this can complement, I think, the efforts we already have. But this isn't meant as, as a substitute for, for vaccination. If I guess, you know, if we have an effective antiviral, is, is there a risk that, you know, people will, will shun the vaccine and, and rely on, on something like this? No, I, I I don't think so. First of all, you're absolutely right. The vaccines that are available, this is these are the most important tools that that we have, and it prevents severe disease, uh, it prevents hospitalizations, and and so forth. We we all know that that is extremely important. Yet um, uh, we need something to treat also infected individuals, right. especially those with risk factors. Some of them, um, for, for some medical conditions, cannot take the vaccine. And then we have, we have to keep in mind, this is a pandemic. This is a, a global disaster. There are areas, uh, countries uh, in this world where vaccines are not available. And then um, a drug uh, like that that is orally available could make the difference. But it's by no means uh, it, it will substitute vaccines. Vaccines are extremely important, prevent severe disease. And um, this is another tool in our toolbox to, to deal um, with, uh, with the virus. All right. Well, still some steps to go, obviously, but some exciting developments today. Professor Gotti, thank you so much for joining us here today. Appreciate your insight on all this. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks. All the best. Uh, That's Dr. Matthias Cote. He's a professor, chair of medical microbiology and immunology at the University of Alberta. So playing an important role in the development of this and in uncovering how it is that this antiviral drug works to attack this particular virus. And it's it's really kind of fascinating, isn't it, as he describes what it is it does. You know, it it disrupts the replication. It it forces the virus to make mistakes in, in how it it copies itself, basically sloppy copies is what it's doing. Uh, so this this data all sounds really encouraging. Obviously, regulators are going to have to dive into this. And, you know, this this isn't going to be approved next week or anything like that. But I think we're close. And at least based on what the company is telling us, and we take it with a grain of salt, I get it. But uh, it sounds really promising. So something that could potentially reduce hospitalizations and death by half, you know, that makes the math pretty easy. That would be a game changer. All right, here we go. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Friday afternoon. Much more still to come, including more time for your phone calls at 403-974-8255. 
Off the top of this hour, though, let's talk about what's going on with natural gas and what they're calling a bull market right now for natural gas. Now, Alberta natural gas prices have certainly increased over the last couple of years. Uh, you know, they flirted uh, at or below a dollar a gigajoule back in 2019. Uh, more recently, they've been uh, flirting more with uh, three or four dollars a gigajoule. What's interesting, though, is what we're seeing nat- uh, internationally, rather. Uh, in Europe, parts of Asia, there are already concerns about natural gas shortages this fall, and uh, they're seeing some record prices there. Now, we can lament the fact maybe that we don't quite have the capacity to export as widely internationally as uh, we might like. But I think at least in terms of Alberta's economic activity, this could bode well. Now, for the industry to, to pivot and be able to meet all of this demand again is going to be a challenge. And that could mean some real challenge on the price side. Now, this is one of those situations like with the price of oil. When the price goes up, that's good news for Alberta's bottom line, at least in terms of government coffers. But it's something, I think, for consumers to be concerned about. And I guess if you're on a floating rate, something you might want to look at locking into as we are bracing for some real volatility this winter. And what could mean some some big price increases when it comes to natural gas, what we use, of course, to heat our homes. So joining us to talk a bit more about uh, what's going on with natural gas, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Rory Johnston, Managing Director and Market Economist at Price Street. Rory, thanks for joining us here today. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Okay, so, I mean, I guess the short answer is supply and demand, but what what's driving up uh, natural gas prices right now? Yes, I think you were right to focus on the global picture, and I think it's particularly acute what we're seeing right now in Europe. So just to put, just to put in perspective, um, you know, we haven't seen uh, really high natural gas prices in North America for the better part of a decade, particularly mm-hmm. since the U.S. shale patch has really got up and going, really kept gas prices capped in North America, uh, with the exception of a couple blows, but like very much capped in that kind of, you know, below $3.50 a million BTU. In Europe right now, we're exceeding $27 a million BTU, reaching all-time highs. That's also being felt in Asia through the LNG market. So the biggest thing I would say, the, the two biggest kind of proximate causes of this uh, price bloat is a combination of really, really unlucky weather mixed with a COVID bullwhip effect. So we had really, really cold winters in Europe and Asia. We had the winter uh, storm that walloped Texas in, in, uh, in North America, then followed by really, really warm uh, weather in Asia and North America. So, you know, when you have unseasonably cold or unseasonably warm weather, all of that increases the demand for natural gas, either by heating or in power generation for air conditioning. So you had that kind of demand backdrop. At the same time, you had the COVID bullwhip effect. So this is what we've seen across a whole bunch of commodities, whether it's uh, iron, whether it's steel or lumber. You had, you know, producers that, for whatever reason, lost production capacity. This particularly happened in Europe because a lot of these producers, uh, say in the Netherlands or the UK, had delayed maintenance in 2020 because maintenance typically requires bringing additional crews into these facilities that was very dangerous with COVID. So they pushed it off thinking that they could just push it to 2021. Now all of this maintenance is hitting us just as the demand is, is hitting crisis levels. So we're not, you know, it's not 
you know, the end of the world yet in Europe, but we're heading into winter with very, very low inventories. So the price is trying to hold back demand so we can have something going into winter because we really don't want to end up in a situation where we have a cold winter and you literally can't heat homes in Europe. So it's, it's, it's becoming a very scary situation. It is. So to what extent then is, is the situation here detached from what's happening in, in Europe or in Asia? I mean, we don't, we don't supply those markets uh, for the most part. And, you know, demand here may be a little different than what demand is there. And, and same thing with supply. But, but there, is, there is some effect. So how, how are we affected by what's happening in other parts of the world? Yeah, so I, historically that's been entirely true. They've been very balkanized regional markets. The thing that's changed over the last decade is the emergence, particularly in the United States, of uh, like a real, you know, large uh, LNG export market. So what we're seeing now in the United States is, and, and, and the other thing that we're seeing in the United States right now is that uh, as uh, U.S. production of natural gas has also fallen off and and you're not seeing uh, production jump back. And we're still likely not going to be seeing pre-COVID production levels of U.S. natural gas until probably the you know, mid to end of next year, despite prices in North America right now sitting around $6 a million BTU. So this, you know, where we're seeing this in gas-directed drilling, or, you know, not coming back. We're seeing U.S. shale oil, which we had a lot of associated gas coming from, you know, the Permian. We're also seeing... You know, people are saying shale on strike. You know, they, you know, they've had such a long period of weak returns. Now prices are high. Investors don't want them to plow it back into investment. They want to return that, the, you know, that uh, that capital to investors through dividends or debt reduction and share buybacks. So you're seeing all of that gas not being produced that we would expect otherwise would swing back into action. And at the same time, you have record-setting LNG exports coming out of the United States. So that LNG is really the bridge between North America and the global markets, which, you know, you know, rewind a couple of years, we thought it was absolutely necessary because we had so much gas in North America. Now it's almost like, you know, that is actually creating a bit of a pull that's, you know, bringing us with the rest of the world. Although, obviously, we're still, you know, you know, a quarter or to a fifth of those uh, global prices at this stage. So we're still pretty lucky. Well, and I mean, you, you know, you talk about the U.S. and their LNG export capacity. I mean, it, it also speaks to the fact that Canada's playing catch up there. I mean, you know, we're, we're making progress on, on the LNG Canada project, but man, what, what a missed opportunity right now it feels like. Absolutely. And I think we're also seeing uh, because of uh, pipeline, you, you, you are seeing production in north in canada hitting you know all-time levels and injections into the the nova gas transmission system hitting high levels but you're also seeing rolling maintenance on that system that is provi- that's reducing uh the you know you know the alberta eco price for for canadian gas so we're not even actually seeing that full that full pass-through effect like you were saying closer to four dollars uh you know a gigajoule rather than six dollars a million btu so we're, we're really kind of the benefit for Albertan and Canadian consumers is that because we're near the wellhead, we're actually even more insulated on the consumption side. We're, you know, we're seeing even lower prices, but on a production and, and, a, and a kind of an economic side, it is definitely a lost opportunity. 
So as uh, consumers start to look ahead to to what this winter might bring and what it could mean for natural gas prices in in Canada, in North America, I know uh, Blake Schaefer, the University of Calgary, an energy economist, has openly said, yeah, consumers should look at, at locking in. If you're on a um, you know, fluctuating rate, you, you could get stung this winter. What, what's your sense of where things are going? I completely agree with Blake. I think that what we're seeing with these energy crises that are going around the world right now is that is that it really is a great time to buy insurance, particularly, as you were saying, uh, you can get it pretty cheap. And I think that uh, while it's not guaranteed that, that, you know, you're going to need that upside price protection, I think what we're seeing is that these systems are just hitting breaking points. And the tra- you, know, you look at any of the price charts, they're basically vertical, vertical lines up and down, which if you are on a floating rate, that's a particularly scary thing to see internationally. All right, we'll see what the coming weeks and months bring us. Uh, Rory, appreciate the insight. Thanks so much for making some time for us here this afternoon. Thanks for having me. All right, all the best. Uh, That is Rory Johnston. He is Managing Director and Market Economist at Price Street. So look at what's happening globally with with natural gas and kind of what the impact is here. So it's something you want to consider, you know, to look at at what you're you're on right now in terms of uh, your plan and whether you want to look at, at locking in. So Rory Johnston, very much on the same page as Blake Schaefer, the University of Calgary, uh, who says that uh, he has locked in his utility prices ahead of the winter and suggests that consumers do the same. So something to think about as we look ahead to what the winter might bring. Now, obviously, when it comes to Calgary in winter, at least on the weather side, things can be a little unpredictable. There's all kinds of indications, though, that, uh, you know, this bull market for natural gas is going to continue. Those prices will rise and will stay high as a result of supply and demand. Which, again, you know, from the Alberta government's perspective and uh, their treasury, their coffers, there's, there's some good news there. But, you know, again, like with the price of oil, sure, that's good for the government coffers. You go to the gas station to fill up, you see the other side of that. So in this case, instead of the gas station, it's your home heating bill. Well, good afternoon. Welcome to this hour of the program. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this Wednesday afternoon. We'll have more time for your phone calls coming up in this hour. Also, some good news on the pipeline front. Enbridge's Line 3 pipeline is complete. Uh, it looks as though it'll be operational as of uh, Friday. So that's exciting news. So we'll touch on that. Also, we'll play some of the uh, comments from the Premier and the Energy Minister today uh, about that. So a bit of good news, which uh, is maybe hard to come by these days. So more on that. Uh, a few other things to get to as well. Now, the timing of all of this uh, might seem awkward at a time when Alberta's asking Canada for help in dealing with uh, our uh, COVID fourth wave, asking the federal government to send help, asking other provinces to take our COVID patients. There's renewed focus on Alberta's place in Confederation. Now, of course, we're going to vote, uh, among other things, uh, in an equalization referendum coming up on October 18th. Comes off the heels of some of the issues uh, explored by and pursued by the province's Fair Deal panel. Uh, But a a policy paper released yesterday arguing that we need to go further than that. The Free Alberta Strategy argues for a sovereign Alberta within confederation. So separation, but not separation. So joining us uh, to talk more about the Free Alberta Strategy, which you can read more, by the way, uh, about it, Alberta Institute.ca, is uh, Dr. Barry Cooper, political scientist at the University of Calgary. 
Barry, appreciate making some time for us here today. Welcome to the program. Oh, thank you. Good afternoon. Okay, so help me understand the concept here of sovereign within confederation. Yeah, it sounds a little bit like sovereignty association, doesn't it? Well, a little bit, honestly. <laughs> uh, it's. Um, I think it's a little more hard-edged than that. Uh, it's In part, it's a response to... Um, I would say about two generations of, of really destructive policy coming out of Ottawa directed at this province and to a lesser extent Saskatchewan. And uh, as I said, uh, with I had one question yesterday at the, at the press conference, it's not really a, uh, a matter of law, it's a matter of politics, because the, uh, the constitutional law of Canada has uh, been uh, eroded um, and many of us think irreparably, so that we have to push back. And it's been eroded in that the government of Canada, the federal government, has uh, taken responsibility for various areas of public policy that they're excluded from or they're given exclusively the provinces. Uh, so that's that's the uh, the motivation for it. The, the policies that we're, we're all familiar with, uh, starting with transfer payments, um, is... Uh, is the, the, probably the, the short-term um, motivation that that uh, a number of people have been saying is just unsustainable, uh, insulting, um, and there's a lot of other adjectives that one can use uh, that uh, to describe it. But that that's where the uh, political impetus is coming from. Well, it's interesting to me, and, and and here's what I often bring up in these conversations. I'm curious your take on this, because, you know, we just had a whole big court case where B.C. was trying to usurp federal jurisdiction over pipelines, and Alberta definitely took Ottawa's side in all of this, that this is federal jurisdiction, and the province can't just declare uh, that federal jurisdiction is now suddenly or magically provincial jurisdiction. I think Alberta would be in a pretty bad spot if B.C. had succeeded. So isn't it hypocritical for Alberta to take that? That approach in that situation, but where it suits our interests to basically argue what BC was trying to argue. Yeah, there's always, there's always a problem uh, not thinking strategically. That's why we call it a strategy. Uh, this um, these short-term problems with these uh, people in British Columbia not wanting to be very cooperative. Uh, if 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 we had said, okay, this is you, BC province can do what you want. But then so can we with respect to um, to British Columbia. Uh, that would be um, uh, that would be consistent. It would also bring these uh, rather uh, let's say <clears throat> malicious uh, public policies in British Columbia to an end pretty quickly. Well, but BC lost. I think that that's my point here, Barry. That that if we open this door, that provinces have more say. That provinces can just declare that federal jurisdiction is now provincial jurisdiction. Alberta would have been screwed in that case. Uh, no, they wouldn't have. They would have had to deal directly with British Columbia uh, if if BC had won. And 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 you know, I they could do this. We could do this. No more um, uh, jet fuel to YVR, for example. Uh, and there's there's nothing there's nothing then that uh, BC could do about it except then complain what to the Supreme Court of Canada, which as <clears throat> we tend to forget, is an agent of the government of Canada. It's not it's not a uh, it's not generally independent. It wasn't intended to be independent when McDonald uh, Johnny McDonald founded it, and it has not ruled in an independent way since uh, it became the Court of Final Appeal in 1949. 
But it's still the Supreme Court of the land. I, I, I would um, argue that any province that is going to unilaterally declare that federal jurisdiction is now theirs is going to face, um, let's say, an uphill battle before the Supreme Court of Canada. Yeah, but the Supreme Court, of course they are. The, the government of Canada, including the Supreme Court, will say it's completely unconstitutional. Uh, that's, that's the whole point uh, of, of saying that uh, this is a kind of uh, of political um, what political disobedience to a, uh, a federation that gradually over I would say since about 19, the 1930s actually uh, has has been increasingly centralized uh, and <clears throat> there was for example a, uh, a a case that was decided by the judicial committee uh, that was before the Supreme Court of Canada was the Court of Final Appeal. Uh, in the 35 or 37, I can't remember, that basically said just because the government of Canada can tax uh, from any source it wants, it doesn't mean that it can spend in any source. And that decision has been completely ignored. Uh, the What's called the spending power has never been uh, revisited. <clears throat> and it's it's mainly through the use of the spending power that, the, that Ottawa has... Um, plus de- 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 the declaratory part, what they call it anyway, uh, has invaded uh, so much of the uh, the provincial responsibilities. And the Supreme Court, have, as an agent of Ottawa, of course, would up, would uphold their ability to do so. Okay, well then it sounds like you're, you're making the argument for, for separation then. If, if we're within Confederation, then, then we're bound by the Constitution, that we're bound by the Supreme Court, are we not? No, no, because the, the Supreme Court... If they have perverted the meaning, the plain meaning of the Constitution, there's no reason why any of the constituent elements, which are political, namely the provinces, should uh, follow anything they say. Well, then we don't have a confederation. What, what am I missing? Uh, well, it's, it's what we had at one point was a, a federation that has become increasingly centralized through, uh, through what we argue anyway, is through perversions uh, of the law of the Constitution. And it's been done by the Supreme Court of Canada. Some of the, the, the proposals in, in the Free Alberta Strategy do, do mirror some of what's come up in the uh, Fair Deal conversation, things like an Alberta Provincial Police Force or an Alberta Revenue Agency. And, you know, I mean, Quebec, for example, has both of those, those things in place. Some of it I'm wondering, though. I mean, I don't know that Quebec is better off by having its own bureaucracy to collect provincial taxes. I don't know that necessarily Quebec or Ontario are more sovereign or independent by having their own provincial police forces, how do these kinds of things benefit Alberta? Well, the the the, the benefit is that uh, that among other things, we would be then enforcing the laws that we consider to be um, legal, and, and that's the first thing. The second is the difference between Alberta and <clears throat> the two big Laurentian provinces is the government of Canada has not targeted them to extract huge amounts of money. Uh, that that they have no business taking, and they have done that with us. We have been in their in their crosshairs for the last two generations, and uh, you know we may say, okay, we like it, we love Canada, we love having sending you you know whatever it is twenty billion a year, um, and uh, and we'll keep doing it forever. But you know we say that's not such a hot idea. Um, we may be outvoted, which is, you know, that's that's what happens. So we'll have two two generations down the road. There'll be somebody else who'll come along with a similar thing. Well, and let's be clear: the money that they take out of Alberta is money that's collected in federal taxes. That, that's it. That's the extent of it. 
Of, yeah, of course it is. Okay, and, well, let's be clear about that. So it wouldn't be a whole lot easier than to have a federal government that, that lowers taxes, for example. Why don't we push for that? That, w- is, that will never happen. And but I this think, will? This will, you think? Well, we'll see. Well, okay. <laughs> but if uh, we're ranking probabilities here, Barry, I, I don't know. Maybe we see that differently. Um, yeah, I, th- well, I mean, we do. I mean, you know, reasonable people can disagree about these sure. things. Um, but with respect to taxes, that we would be, we would, Alberta would be collecting the taxes that the government of Canada currently collects, and we would remit to Canada what we thought was an appropriate amount. But no, that's not what Quebec does, though. Well, that's what we would do. You know, the, where would we have the authority to do that? Because we would set up. Well, if, you know, it's in the it's it's in the strategy. Which we would set up a collection agency for, um, uh, for I think it's about, what, 25 or 30 percent of the, of the workforce in this province is, uh, can be construed to be uh, employees of the uh, province of Alberta, including me, for example. Right. Um, and, uh, and the province of Alberta would collect income tax. Okay. From, and, and where's the benefit there? Are, we, are you actually talking about that we would just decide to withhold? Yes, exactly. We would withhold. Well, okay. <laughs> that sounds pretty illegal, pretty unconstitutional. It's, it's entirely unconstitutional because the Constitution <laughs> has been perverted. That's the whole point. That's why it's political. It's not legal. Well, okay. Then then I don't know. Then, then I mean, any province can do anything it wants then I, and at this point. If, if other provinces have been targeted the way we have been targeted then they bloody well should. Of course. I mean, that makes perfect sense. The, the problem is that we have been the only one who's been targeted this way. So back to the question, then. Isn't this an argument for separation? I, I'm not a separatist myself. I, I think if you were to come on and say, here are the reasons for separation... I, that would seem more logical to me. I, 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 this idea of kind of having it both ways, I, well, I don't get it, the, honestly. My, my position on this is, uh, quite frankly, I don't think that the government of Canada or the, uh, the Laurentian provinces will uh, want to talk to us at all. You know, in which case, then the only other uh, reasonable option is, is independence, of course. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But this is this is a, an opportunity uh, for uh, for Canada to to continue to exist. If if Laurentians don't want to discuss this at all, okay, that's that's their choice. Uh, they they are quite happy exploiting us, taking uh, as much money as they can from us, and trying to shut down the oil industry. So you know that's that's the thing that really, I mean, when they were supportive, when the government of Canada was supportive, say of of the oil sands, um, then you know we, we said, well, okay, you're ripping us off, but you know at least we're, we're doing okay. But when they target the source of the money that we send to them, that's really irritating. So what's the vehicle for this? I mean, it clearly sounds that this would be an Alberta initiative. Is this something then that you're asking the current government to adopt? Is this the beginning of a new political party or or a political movement? How how does this move forward? Well, the great thing about politics is that nobody can predict the future. Of course, it would be nice if the current government read this and say, by golly, this is a solution to all of our problems. 
Uh, I don't think they will for uh, various various reasons. I mean, they they don't seem to. So then maybe somebody else will uh, will come along and and say, yeah, you know, this uh, Alberta strategy sounds like a good idea. We're going to support it. Um, but it, it's not. We don't have any um, political party in mind. It's not founding another party or anything like that. It really is a, a strategic paper that we put out there for people to read, discuss, see what they make of it, uh, criticize it. That's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, we'll see what happens. But the, 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 basic, um, the basic condition for um, me actually getting together with these guys, because I, I sort of, I, I think I met, met the other two authors, but I didn't, they weren't, we're not friends or anything, we, at least we are now, I guess, but right. I, I, didn't, I didn't really know them, uh, was how the current situation is simply intolerable. We cannot keep doing this. You can't have the major industry in this province targeted in such a way that it will be out of existence in, you know, 25 or 30 years and have all of this money taken from Albertans and given to other people. I mean, it's as if they're not our friends anymore. It's like we're not even fellow citizens. We'll let people know, albertainstitute.ca. They can read the uh, free Alberta strategy for themselves. Uh, Barry Cooper, thank you for joining us here today. I do appreciate it. You bet, Rob. That is uh, Professor Barry Cooper, political scientist, University of Calgary, one of the authors of the free Alberta strategy. A detailed strategy, they say, to free Alberta from Ottawa's control and restore self-determination for Albertans within Confederation, though. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.